that the Gonski report earlier this year set an aspiration that all students should make at least a year's worth of progress for every year they're in school. If we're going to hit that aspiration as a nation, we've got to find a way to lift progress in the most disadvantaged schools. Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. Welcome to the Grattan podcast channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute. And today we're discussing the quality of school education in Australia. In particular, we're looking at the progress students make over the course of their schooling. Which states are getting the best results on this measure and how do they do it? Which states make the least progress and what might they be doing wrong? My two guests can shed light on some of these questions because they've created a revealing new way of measuring what matters in our schools. I'm joined firstly by Grattan Institute's School Education Program Director, Peter Goss. Great to be with you. welcome. And I'm also joined by Grattan's School Education Fellow, Julie Sonneman. Julie, welcome to you. Thanks. Peter and Julie have just published an important new Grattan Institute report called Measuring Student Progress, a State-by-State Report Card. Now, we'll get to that report card soon because it's very interesting. But first, Peter, could I ask you, why did you decide to do this report? For many years now, Grattan Institute has focused on the idea of student progress, not just achievement. Schools aren't responsible for what their students know the first day they walk in in prep or in year seven. They are responsible for how far they take them, how much learning the students actually get. And the more that they learn in the time in their 13 years at school, the more they will know by the time it's it's time to pass out through the school gates. Now, ideally, we'd love to uh, look at the broad, rich and deep set of things that would matter in education. The reality is that the best data set that we have on student progress comes from NAPLAN and the literacy and numeracy skills that it measures really are important and foundational. Now, NAPLAN is often used through my school to look at what individual schools are doing, sometimes even what groups of schools are doing, Mm -hmm. but trying to improve one school at a time across Australia's 10,000 schools is going to be too slow. So we need to look for bigger picture patterns. We talked about this in a report that we published late last year called Towards an Adaptive Education System in Australia that said we need to be looking at where outcomes are different and then what's causing them within schools, across schools, across regions and also across states. And having put that challenge out there to say that we should be looking at which states are adding the most value in there, prompting the question of why, I figured that I'd better do something about it, and that's this report. The last bit about why we did this report and why we focused on progress is not that progress is the only thing that matters. Of course, achievement matters as well. Sure. But in general terms, there is an awful lot of progress, uh, an awful lot of discussion about achievement and so we felt that the scales were a bit out of balance. We focused on progress not because it's the only thing but because it's much less talked about. Okay so I can see why student progress is worth measuring and worth emphasizing but how does one measure it Peter? 
Australia is fortunate in NAPLAN to have a test that is done four times during the course of a student's schooling career, in year three, in year five, in year seven, and in year nine. And one of the benefits of it is that the score that students get is consistent across those four tests. So that if a student scores 500 in year three, then they're doing pretty well, but they're showing the same level of skills as a student who scores 500 in year seven. Mm -hmm. What that means then is that when you look at how much a student has improved their score in NAPLAN, that's a representation of how much they've learned from year three to five to seven to nine. We can then look at that at a school level and in primary school, that typically means from year three to year five. In secondary school, that typically means from year seven to year nine. And say, how much do students on average make within each school? And some students, some schools are better at helping their students learn than others. Now, there's a complexity within that, that uh, with NAPLAN, it's true, it seems, with many tests, students who start from a low base make a lot of gain in NAPLAN points, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're actually learning quicker. I used the analogy when we wrote widening gaps a couple of years ago, that it's like cycling. If I start cycling in the middle of Melbourne where it's pretty flat and head up towards the hills, mm -hmm. if I'm riding with Cadell Evans, then uh, he will zoom off ahead of me, of course. Mm -hmm. But in about an hour's time, he's going to be halfway up the hill riding slower and I'm going to be still on the flats riding quicker. Now, the fact that I'm making more distance doesn't mean I'm riding better than Naked L at that point. Mm. It's just easier for me. So in the same way, NAPLAN is on what we would call a curve. We adjust for that curve so that we can compare all students. We, we aggregate that across schools. We then aggregate that across whole states. Um, and when we do that, again, we compare like for like so that we can actually pick up the subtle differences that are trying to get to the point of would similar students make more or less progress if they were in one state or another? And if they do, then we can start to prompt the question, why? But Peter, you're relying, are you not, on the NAPLAN test, which is quite a controversial matter. Now, are you confident that NAPLAN is the best foundation for the sorts of insights you've produced in this report? Yes, we are. In my view, this is exactly the type of research that NAPLAN was designed to do. Mm -hmm. As a test, it is highly consistent. Um, the internal properties of it, the, the work that has been done by ACARA, but also our, our own analysis, suggests that when you average a large number of students together, and we're looking at the whole country, then you get reliable, consistent results, and you can make these type of subtle comparisons that you want. Now, I understand that NAPLAN is sometimes controversial. Much of that, in my view, comes from the idea that we can do league tables of schools, but that's actually about my school, the website, mm -hmm. and how things are presented. The idea that we have this amazing rich data set, we should give it up, I think is completely backwards. 
it helps us navigate and understand where things are going well or not. It's not as accurate as a GPS, the global positioning system. But giving it up would be like going back to trying to navigate by the tides and the stars. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we should hang on to it and use it for what it's good at. This type of research, it's outstanding at. And I think um, to add to that, NAPLAM, when it was introduced in 2008, um, was the first standardised test to be introduced across Australia. So Mm. there's actually no other test that exists that tracks students over time in the same way that NAPLAM does. So it's really the only test that we have if we want to look at student progress over time. Okay, so Julie, you've looked at student progress over time. Tell me what's your impression of the most important, most interesting findings? Well, what we find um, is that there are big differences between states in Australia in terms mm-hmm. of student progress. And actually, those differences are bigger than other factors that are often talked about, like um, private schools or, or remote schools, um, or whether schools are big or small. So um, it confirms that differences between states matter. Um, in terms of which states are underperforming and outperforming, mm-hmm. um, so in particular for Queensland, we can see that they're doing... Um, particularly well in reading, and they're making two months more than the national average. Over the course of a year or two years? Over the course of two years, Mm -hmm. and that finding's been consistent over time. So it's not just happening by chance. There's something there. Um, What might that something be, Julie? That's a good question, and if we knew that, that would um, be extremely helpful for policymakers. Um, there's a, there's a few things that Queensland does do differently that we've recommended should be explored further. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, there, um, there was a, a specific literacy and numeracy strategy in 2009 right. that Queensland implemented. Um, so that the success of that strategy should, should be looked at. Um, and that strategy was really in response to a shock that the Queensland government got in 2008 about the fact that it had one of the lowest NAPLAN results in the country. Um, so there's also the possibility that perhaps NAPLAN's just been more of a focus in Queensland mm-hmm. than other states and territories. Mm-hmm. Um, now, some of our listeners might be thinking at this point that there's another easy, obvious cause, which is that Queensland during this time introduced an extra year of school. They used to start school at year one, Mm-hmm. Then they introduced a prep school, so that in students at prep year, so that students are six months older when they started. Um, sure, that makes a difference to the level of achievement that the students have. They've had more schooling by the time they first sit their NAPLAN test in year three. They're a little bit older. Their achievement levels go up. But here's one of the subtleties of this report, Paul. We're not looking at achievement. We're looking at progress. Mm-hmm. That takes into account the prior levels of achievement and looks really at the value add. And as Julie said, Queensland has been adding more value consistently over many years now, and that pattern doesn't match up with when the extra prep year. So it's not that simple. Mm. Um, And uh, intriguingly, I was up in Queensland actually just earlier this week. They are asking some of the same question. They know that some things are going really well. Mm. They're still trying to also figure out some of the causes. I can feel another Grattan report coming on. So, Julie, if um, Queensland gets the gold stamp, which states must do better? 
So the ACT is has comes out routinely below average at both primary and secondary. Does it really? I would have thought the stereotypical view of ACT residents is that they're wealthy, well-educated, advantaged. That's right. They are, in fact the most advantaged across Australia. Mm-hmm. So it is surprising. What our analysis does is it looks at student progress um, for similar schools in different states and territories. So right. it takes into account the fact um, that they have higher advantage. Right. Um, there has been discussion about ACT's performance publicly. There was a an Auditor General's report in 2017 that looked at ACT's performance and did identify a number of issues in the classroom. So that Teachers are not necessarily using student performance data in their teaching as much as they could. Um, so there, there, there could potentially be some reasons behind that. And, and I guess these results really affirm that, that they need to be dug into much more. And do we have a sense that the ACT government and policymakers are onto this and are concerned? I think there is concern. I think um, the State Department officials um, definitely are across some of these issues in the results. I think it is interesting, though, that the government is actually calling to scrap NAPLAN. Of all those different states and territories, the ACT is probably the most aggressive, um, and, and particularly at this point in time. I think given that we wouldn't have known some of these, the extent of some of these findings without NAPLAN, I think that's a pretty um, a pretty loose call. On absolutely, that. absolutely. So tell me about the big states, New South Wales and Victoria. What do we see when we look at those places? So in New South Wales, they excel in terms of uh, pushing the kids at the top. So those, those students are making above average progress routinely. And that's not to some extent, that much of a surprise because New South Wales, of all the different states and territories, has had a bit more of a focus at the top end. They okay. have had a policy of um, selective schools and selective classrooms where they they put the best kids together and really also give teachers a lot more support and how to how to teach to those students. And we've made sure that few of those schools are in our data set, so that's not a simple answer. But the general culture might actually help explain that. Their focus on them stretching the top end. That's right, um, but they don't do it necessarily as well at the bottom. Um, but when you look to Victoria, they have the reverse effect. So Victoria actually does really well at the at the tail end. So they're great in terms of equity. Um, they're equity. They're, you mean improving the lot of disadvantaged students? So their disadvantaged students make the highest progress at secondary across Australia. Right. And that really fits with Victoria's ethos and their history in terms of their policy focus. Um, they've, they were the first state in Australia to introduce needs-based funding in 2005, mm-hmm. and they've also had some successful large-scale programs for disadvantaged schools. So we're seeing a bit of a theme that culture within the education system, ethos, as well as policy, can make a tangible difference to students' performance in the classroom. I think that's right. I think I think the two are lining up at a very high level. Mm-hmm. I think what we need to now dig into is so what specific policies or what specific programs are actually driving that. Before we get to that, tell me about some of the other. Perhaps the, we've we've done the big states. Tell me about some of the smaller places, the so, Northern Territory, Tasmania. So Northern Territory and Tasmania are often thought of as being the really poor performers in Australia. Mm. Um, once you take student 
socioeconomic background into account, which our analysis does, they're actually not doing too bad. Their, their, their progress rates are pretty similar to other states and territories, so they, they tend to get a bit of a bad rap. Fascinating. I, if, if we could simplify that, in some ways it's not that they're doing a bad job of teaching. They have a much harder job than any of the other states or territories, particularly the, the Northern Territory has the toughest job of them all. Just explain that, Peter, why? There are far more disadvantaged students in the Northern Territory, somewhat more in Tasmania. Um, many of those are remote, Indigenous, and across the data set, actually, they're the students who we see that are making the least progress. And can we look a bit further west to perhaps South Australia and Western Australia? So in terms of South Australia's performance, uh, um, at at primary, um, they're slightly below the national average, mm-hmm. um, making around one to two months less progress over the course of two years. So they do have some some work to do. And Western Australia, Peter? We can't forget our friends over in the West. In primary school, they're doing about par. Now, one of the things with this report is that when you focus on your seven to nine progress, then that assumes the students are in the same school. You can't get the data otherwise. Mm-hmm. And up until about 2015, students in year seven were part of primary school in Western Australia, right. not in a, not in secondary school. Um, we've done some other work that suggests that Western Australia is actually uh, doing a good job of lifting progress in secondary school. Maybe that's because they've given the students an incentive to try harder via, via linking it to whether they can graduate from school. Right. But it's not in this report because the data set that we have it doesn't include Year 7 in West Australian secondary schools. Julie, you mentioned private schools versus government schools. Now, again, let me rely on a stereotype. The, the impression would be that if I want my children to whiz through school and achieve the best that they can and make the most progress possible, I should spend a lot of money and send them to a private school. Is that what you're seeing in this data? So this data tells us that there's very little differences between private and, and public schools. Right. Um, particularly at primary, um, there's virtually no difference. At secondary, there's perhaps maybe one month of difference over the course of two years for independent mm. schools, being slightly above average. Um, but really, I think you know there are a lot of reasons why parents choose schools and perhaps they choose private schools for things much that are much more broader than the academics around sport or music and all those other offerings. But I think if if you're expecting to choose private schools with the expectation that they're adding more value than government schools, I think you should think again. Okay. And digging into that, there is big variation among different schools within all the three sectors. So uh, if we want a simple message for parents, it's that the individual school matters much more than just being able to choose by sector and saying everything will be okay if I go independent or Catholic or government. And I think you said to me, uh, Julie, that um, location of the school is not a particularly big factor either. Uh, Do we see much difference between the schools and the school students in the inner cities and people up the bush? So again, we find virtually no difference between 
um, remote schools and city and regional schools, mm. which is surprising. And that's once student background is taken into account. So it's a, it's an interesting idea because uh, there is a lot of focus on rural and, and regional and remote Australia. Um, and they do definitely have a, a tougher job in those schools. So they have a lot more teacher shortages and whatnot. Um, but once you actually look at the data, a lot of the difference is explained by by family background. Um, so it's really important that we are clear about what problem we're trying to solve mm. when we're looking at, at rural areas. Um, and I think there was a national review into um, rural and regional Australia in 2017. Mm-hmm. And that particular aspect, like the actual, the fact that most of the most of the difference is explained by socioeconomic background, wasn't something that was emphasised, and it really changes the direction in terms of where you look for the solutions. Okay, I think what it means, yeah, absolutely agree, Julie. Um, they they do have a tougher job, so we may still, as a nation. Um, decide that we need to lean in to support those regional, remote and rural schools to make sure that this generation of children gets better educational opportunities. They can then pass their, turn that into better job opportunities and better opportunities for their children and grandchildren. So on a policy term, we may well need to lean in, but we shouldn't forget that there are also some very disadvantaged schools within the cities. Certainly. And that's the comparison that we're making and saying it doesn't appear to be the fact that they are regional or rural. It's more when you have disadvantaged students, it's harder to get learning to progress well. Which leads me, Peter, to my next set of questions, I suppose, which is you've now gathered and reported on this very interesting new research, but so what? What should we do with this information? What are you recommending? We have four recommendations for this report, Paul. The first is that this type of work should be done systematically. It is throwing up some interesting patterns that challenge some of the conventional wisdom about which states are adding the most value. Indeed. It's not easy to see this in the National NAFLAN report for a number of reasons. Partly it's progress is relegated to one small chapter at the back of the report, partly because the measure that they use in that chapter doesn't take account of the curve that I described Mm -hmm. earlier. So there should be a routine and improved way of reporting on this type of analysis could use our measure, it could use an equivalent one, but the question needs to keep being asked and answered. Mm -hmm. The second recommendation uh, is unfortunately, in a sense, a commission more research that if you're going to improve in an adaptive sense, Mm -hmm. you need to pay attention not just to the outcomes, and that's what we've looked at, measuring the outcomes as progress, You also need to pay attention to what's actually being done. What policies, what programs, how's that translating into the classroom? And then you need to put the two together and say, well, if a certain policy or approach worked well or a cultural thing, how can we do more of that? Julie, how much do we know about what is happening in our classrooms and how much of this is down to the particular teacher or the particular practices applied by the teachers? So there's very little systematic data on teaching practices collected across the system. So there's a lot of 
anecdotal information. There's a lot of one-on-one, case-by-case. But at the moment, government policymakers really don't have access to data that gives them a good sense on where teaching quality is at. And that's a problem because if your policies and programs are designed to support teachers, but yet you don't actually know what the level of quality, what their key challenges are, then it's very difficult to do. That's a problem, but how does one gather that data? Because as a parent, it's something of a mystery to me what happens when my children go off to school and the classroom door closes and I don't know what's happening after that. How does one gather that data so that we know more about the quality and the practices of our teaching? So there's a couple of options that I think the state governments could explore, and one is around sampling doing doing systematic samples mm-hmm. across schools. Um, and I think that's the least interventionist mm-hmm. because I think all schools and teachers roll their eyes when they hear more data collected. Mm-hmm. And also they're you know protective as to how that data might be used at scale. So routine sampling is, is one option. Um, another is you could go down the path of something similar to the UK where they have inspections in schools that yes. are used for ratings on teacher quality. I mean, that would be a radical change in Australia. So the cultural appropriateness would need to be thought through. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and the, there's other measures like student feedback surveys, which are actually one of the most accurate indicators of teaching effectiveness. Are they? Yes, surprisingly mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. You know, ask the students. They can they can tell you whether a teacher is, um, is, is good at their job or not. And, um, and you've got to ask the right question, but students can give a lot of information to say... Um, does the student, does the class waste a lot of time at mm-hmm. the start? Mm-hmm. Or when a teacher asks a question, do I have enough time to actually think about the answer before someone has to respond? And now that sounds a, a bit arcane, but actually it links into the science of learning. Something called wait time is important so that the students get their brains into gear. That process of thinking about the answer is in some ways more helpful and some know it all uh, just sticking up their hand. Mm-hmm. Ask the question the right way. And, and I'd agree, Julie, that a, uh, Kids do provide a lot of info. So, Peter, we clearly need more information, in particular on teaching and what's happening in the classroom. We do. That's recommendation three. I mean, again, this is a cultural shift and needs to be done carefully. Peter, any other recommendations? The last recommendation comes from what, uh, what we've talked about that when you look at which groups of students are making the most progress on which are making the least progress, there's a systematic and very worrying pattern. There's a narrative that goes around that suggests that some high achieving schools are cruising and actually showing the lowest growth. Our data says the opposite. Students who are in low achieving schools are typically making the lowest progress. Many of those schools are quite disadvantaged Many of them are making a lot less than a year's worth of progress every year. In secondary school, in fact, they're learning about half as much in numeracy as students in more uh, in higher achieving schools and um, about 30% less in reading. These are really huge differences. And so the danger or in f- perhaps the reality is that disadvantaged students fall further behind as they go through schooling? 
that's uh, what seems to be happening. That was a message that we had picked up in our report a couple of years ago and is strongly reinforced by the extra work that we've been able to do this time. Right. That the Gonski report earlier this year set an aspiration that all students should make at least a year's worth of progress for every year they're in school. If we're going to hit that aspiration as a nation, we've got to find a way to lift progress in the most disadvantaged schools. Okay, so I want to push you a little further on that. You've identified a very big problem that has been evident for some time. Yes, we need to address it. How might we make some progress in lifting those disadvantaged schools and students? I think if you look at some of the data on disadvantaged um, disadvantaged schools, there's a couple of things that jump out at you in terms of how Australia compares internationally. So disadvantaged schools have far more teacher shortages than advantaged schools in Australia, and that gap is one of the largest in the in the OECD. Teachers don't want to be there? Teachers don't want to be there. And look, we've got a very autonomous system where mm-hmm. schools are responsible for recruiting teachers, but that also relies on teachers wanting to work there. Yes. And I think... When you also look at the other data, which shows that the classroom environments in disadvantaged schools are typically, they're harder as a task for teachers. So sure. the, the levels of noise and disruption in those classrooms are much higher compared to advantaged schools in Australia. And, it, and it, that's much worse by international standards as well. So I think that the government does have a role to take in terms of making these schools attractive places to work because clearly at present some teachers are deciding perhaps it's too hard Um, and really rewarding the teachers that do work there. Yes. I'm also going to um, raise an issue that we haven't written on but I'm starting to look at more, which is mental health in schools. Go on. There was a report done by the Telethon Institute out in Western Australia last year which showed that students who have mental health issues, whether that's anxiety, depression, um, ADHD... Uh, they they are making a lot less progress through their schooling. Mm-hmm. Now, the link between that and disadvantage is that those mental disorders are much more common among disadvantaged students. Sure. So uh, um, that's a really tough one. Uh, the federal government has actually put a lot of money into a program um, that is being um, run by Beyond Blue to explicitly do that. But that's an an indication of the complexity of trying to break through and lift the education level for one generation so that they can pass it on to the next. Um, It does sound as though this is all doom and gloom, but one of the encouraging parts of this research is we we found there are some very disadvantaged schools that really are breaking the Mm -hmm. odds. So, you know, where you come from doesn't determine where you're going to end up. Um, and identifying those schools and seeing what they're doing special and different uh, does give me some hope. Okay, Peter. So in in closing, just just paint the big picture for us. What's what's your vision for better school education in Australia? And how does the information that you and Julie have gleaned from this report help to get us there? So I wrote last year that Australia has three overarching challenges in school education. Mm -hmm. One is to do better at the traditional subjects, including literacy and numeracy. 
this report speaks very directly to that. It says, here's what the spread of learning progress is in literacy and numeracy. Indeed. The second one is uh, more about preparing young people for a changing world. Well, that's a different report, not this one. The third is about reducing the gap between the educational haves and have-nots. Right. In doing that, I laid out a vision for how to have an education system that is more adaptive, that can learn from what's working well, that can acknowledge the shortcomings, that schools and regions and systems are looking at their own practices and deciding which ones to uh, selectively keep and which ones to kill, but they're also looking beyond their own boundaries to learn from others. Mm -hmm. That definitely means looking much more at the teaching, which is why we've spent a bit of time in this podcast talking about how do you understand what's happening in the classroom. Sure. But a part of that is to just say what is actually working. This report is a contribution to that debate. Thank you very much, Peter and Julie, for your work on this important report and for your expertise and your explanations today. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you would like to read any of Peter and Julie's reports and articles on school education, the performance of teachers, adaptive education, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.